Well, I hope you're surviving after too much ice cream. There's one of you I know who's really suffering, but I hope the rest are all right and not feeling too queasy after ice cream and lots of supper. 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, is kind of the story that we carry with us for the rest of our days, don't we, from those Sunday school moments. And what we're going to try and do this evening together is to go slowly through this story, take our time, we take it actually in three chunks, and I'll give you time to talk about it when we've done the first chunk, and then we'll go steadily through the next bit, and we'll talk again, and then come to the next part of it. I want to slow the pace of the action right down. In fact, with our own church family, we spent one whole weekend on just this one chapter together. And as we went through it together, we separated out the episodes, the scenes, and the speeches. And we spent a whole session with, with the soundtrack off, if I can think of it like that. So we, 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 in a sense, ignored what everybody said going through the chapter, and we just looked at what there is to see going through the chapter. We don't have time to spend a whole weekend on one chapter tonight. But I want to reassure you that actually a group of people this size could very happily meet for a whole weekend in this particular chapter and still be discovering new things by the end of the weekend. So there's a kind of trailer for where we're heading. Um, If you remember your uh, adventures of Tom Sawyer, whoops, where's Tom Sawyer gone? Lost Tom Sawyer. Is he there? Can you put Tom Sawyer back on for me? Is Huckleberry Finn there somewhere? doesn't matter if he isn't. You can see from the back there. You've lost him. Okay, no worries. There's a story in, uh, in Mark Twain about how Tom won, that, won a uh, competition at Sunday school, much to everybody's surprise. Uh, they didn't know he was uh, swapping the winning tickets that uh, belonged to other boys for fish hooks. And he was brought to the very front of the class and presented with the Bible. And the lady who was presenting the Bible was sure that Tom must know his Bible really well to have won the competition, and Tom said nothing. So she pressed on, and she said to him, tell me the names of the first two followers of Jesus. And Tom told her the names of the only two Bible characters he could remember, which were David and Goliath. Now, we know more of the story than Tom knew, and we remember this story from our childhood if we've had that kind of childhood. Even if we've never read the story, we kind of know where it's going. Over the weekend, I've talked to numbers of you, and you have all kinds of professional skills that you use for analyzing engineering issues or IT issues. And numbers of you have said to me uh, in conversation that it struck you that you haven't yet, I'm not criticizing this at all, please don't misunderstand me, transferred those skills to the reading of God's word. That you haven't brought the level of analysis, if you like, that you're used to, Monday to Friday, to the way that you read the scriptures. And the conviction that I want to, to, if you like, bring to you is that God knows exactly what he wants to say, but also he knows exactly how he wants to say it. And that he's chosen to say it in the best possible way that it could be said. If he could say what this story was going to say to us by a different route, here are ten things I want you to know, that's how he'd have said it. But he, as the perfect communicator, that's the assumption I'm starting from, that if you like, God is able to inspire communication so fully that it's not just the content, it's the way he does it that deserves our best attention. And so I want to encourage you to soak yourself with me inside this story, to come right inside the skin of the story, and we'll be spending most of our evening in the story, because as we go up, if you like, on the journey through the story, it does something to us that God intends to happen. And if we don't give it that attention, then we miss what God has intended for us to experience through going inside the world of the story. Does that make sense? Some of you will know, I'm, I'm a big kid, really, and we have a little book at home called Katie Goes to the National Gallery. And she goes off with her granny to the National Gallery. And she's a bit disconcerted because she's holding her granny's hand and looking at a picture. If you imagine that mirror as being like a picture... And one of the characters in the picture winks at her and says, psst, come here. And she climbs into the picture and she goes off an adventure inside the story of the picture. And she meets the characters in the picture and walks across the landscape in the picture. And then she comes out back to her granny and they go off home for tea. Well, what we're going to do together, if you like, is a little bit like that. We're going to see what you, what you might consider a familiar story with familiar characters and familiar action from childhood. But we're going to, in a sense, climb inside the picture. We're going to climb inside the story, and inside the world of the story, we're going to ask, well, who who is God? What's good about God? 
uh, what's gone wrong in the world inside the story? And what's God doing to fix it? And why should we care anyway? And then we'll climb out of the story, of, the, of, of this particular story, and come back here. Does, does that make sense to you as a kind of approach to stories? So take the story shape seriously. Don't boil everything down to three points all beginning with the same letter. Do you see that? We've had that a lot, haven't we? And it's best to let the story be the story and carry us with it into its own world. Let me just uh, illustrate the way that this particular story has been hijacked for all sorts of uh, purposes. Now, for those who weren't here yesterday, this little picture is where we've been traveling as a way of illustrating the difficulty of going and the danger of going straight from the story, bottom left-hand corner, to what we might call us, the sinners in the stalls today. There is no direct route, no through road, uh, and it's a dangerous road to take if you travel simply from the story to today. What we spent our weekend trying to do is to say, okay, well, who told the story and why? And who was listening when that story was first told? We've, in a sense, followed the story onto a stage. Who's put this here for God's people to see and to hear? And we've been listening to Hannah's song as a kind of backing track to each of the episodes that follow on from that initial song. And then we've traveled in our mind's eye from, in this case, David and Goliath on stage and Saul there too, across to the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our Savior. And we've compared or contrasted what we can see on the stage with what we can see in him, in his person, or at his death. And then we've traveled from him to here, and I've been giving you three little pictures of how to do that. Uh, the book of James, teaching scripture to us as being like a mirror that we look into, we can see what needs adjusting. The whole of the scriptures, Calvin's picture, that scripture is like glasses to bring spiritual reality sharply into focus for us to help us see who God is and what matters to God more clearly. And then the idea of the whole of the scripture being like a wedding invitation to that supper party in heaven, that uh, magnificent banquet that we may God know God ultimately with full intimacy. And every chapter along the way, every episode, every story is part of that invitation to get us to that party. If it didn't take, in a sense, the whole of the scriptures to invite us, God could just have sent an RSVP and we could have just replied simply, couldn't we? But actually, he takes the whole story to make sure that we can see where we fit in, what it means to be on our way to that supper. So with this story, the David and Goliath story, let me read you something from a talk I found on the web, which is called David and Goliath for Small Businesses. And this is an example of the abuse of the story coming straight from the story to people desperate to know about how to do marketing. I quote, In the battle against the Philistine army, David was able to spot a niche, a niche no one wanted to venture into. All Israelite soldiers were waiting for a confrontation with the Philistine army, but nobody wanted to face Goliath. David was able to spot the niche that nobody wanted to fight Goliath. So instead of focusing on the army of the enemies, he focused on Goliath. Goliath was his niche to victory. That's pathetic, isn't it, really, in a sense, that you could uh, abuse the scriptures, whatever else this passage is designed to teach. It's not designed to teach us how to run a small business, how to spot a niche in the market. And the absurdity of it, in a sense, conceals the scandal of it. And the scandal is this, that God has something very definite to say to us through this chapter. Our creator, our redeemer, speaks to us through this part of his word. And if we distort and abuse and twist his word and make it say something about marketing and finding a niche, then we're not going to hear what God does say. And we're going to give the people the impression that this passage can mean anything we want it to mean. And that must be disastrous. It always ends in tears when we fail to listen to God and allow people to distort and twist the word of God. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll have seen the wreckage in people's lives that follows from that kind of behavior. Do you see that? So we need to hear what God says from this particular chapter. So I want to go very slowly, step by step through it. And what's striking to me is the way our storyteller starts. He insists upon it. Oh, just before we get there, do you remember the song? Do you remember your favorite phrase from the song, if you were here this morning? Remember it? Everybody remembers what their favorite phrase was? Carry it with you into the story. Have it in the back of your mind. Play it like the track as we go through the story. And then at the end, we'll be able to come back to it. 
Okay, so what this surprises me, and I wouldn't have started it quite like this, is that the storyteller insists that we grasp the geography. It begins with geography. So if you look in verses 1, 2, 3, you can see a lot about geography, where they were assembled in Sokka in Judah, where they pitched camp between these two other places. In other words, this is not a fairy story. This is a thing that took place actually in a part of the map that they all know. Now, I don't know my Bali money from my Bali Mina, I'm afraid. Um, and I really, really don't know your geography here locally. Uh, and we don't always actually know our Old Testament geography. So roughly speaking, we're left of the, of the Dead Sea. And I'll just run through these quickly. You can see where the valley is here, just up here, just above me here, just there. And, oh, look, that's a town we know. There is Bethlehem. And the action, this particular chapter, is going to take place between that valley and that little town. The name Soko, the little place here, appears on the handle of a jar, a royal stamped jar handle in the British Museum. Yeah, it's quite helpful sometimes, isn't it, to know that actually there are artifacts that come from these places. God is at work in very specific locations. And it's about 14 miles from the valley to the little town of Bethlehem. The story, it starts in the valley and then it cuts back to Bethlehem. So Bethlehem off the page to the, to the right and you can see the two uh, groups gathered there. And it moves. So we start where the armies are, then we go to Bethlehem where David is, back to the valley where David comes and he arrives with a donkey and we'll come back to the donkey and a load of cheese to find out from his father's from his father, how his brothers are getting on. And then you can see the two hillsides there, the mountain in the version that was read to us, Philistines on one hill, uh, Israelites on the other hill, a valley in between them. And there's a little picture of the valley today. Now, some of you may have been to this particular valley. It's the natural point of entry from Philistine territory into the hill country of Saul's kingdom. Now, why grasp the geography? Why is that important? Why do we have to have geography first before we get to the giant? Well, because if you pause and think about geography, the geography of this particular land, we want to know as we look at this geography where God is. Remember I talked about putting the story on the stage. Well, even in terms of the story, where's God? Is God back in Bethlehem with David? Or is God with Saul and the Israelites? And there's silence from God in this particular valley at the start of the story. And God's silence and God's, if you like, the fact that he's off stage, turns out not to mean that God is indifferent to what's happening. And again, if you think about that, as the story develops, as the Bible story develops, there was silence from God on a hill outside the city wall, wasn't there, on a Friday. But that didn't mean that God wasn't interested in what was happening on that particular day. And often there's silence from us, as we, from, from God in our own lives, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, a dark path, a dark stage in our lives. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't see or doesn't care. And so the invisibility of God, as we gaze at this geography and we see the two armies, but no sign of God himself, doesn't mean that God doesn't care or isn't in control or isn't involved. Do you see that? But the storyteller insists that we start with the geography. Now let's come from the geography to the giant. If we grasp the geography to start with, the next thing he wants us to do, and he does this at some length, is to gaze at the giant. So look in verse 4, the very careful way the giant is introduced. A giant came out from the enemy camp, a champion named Goliath. So the action takes place slightly off, off stage for us. But, but in verse 8, we're told there that uh, Goliath stands. Now he stands center stage and he shouts. So we move from being introduced to the giant, who comes sort of clanking out, a bit like sort of Robocop. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then in verse 8, he stands at the center and he shouts. And what goes on between verse 4 and verse 8 is the most extraordinary detailed description 
of the giant's weapons. We don't get on with the story to the fight where it's slowed down. Again, the pace slows right down. And they force us, the way that these different descriptions of the giant's equipment, they force us to picture, if you like, the terrifying power of this giant and the human impossibility of anybody defeating him. Goliath is the champion's name, and Gath is the champion's hometown. We'll come back to Gath in a minute. And he's massive. His height is six cubits and a span. I'm sure you know this from those days when you did the story, but a, a cubit is a distance from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger. It's about 18 inches for most men. A span is about nine inches from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the little finger of a splayed hand. You measure horses in hands, don't you? Slightly differently. And six cubits in a span, so that's about nine feet nine. Who's the tallest here? You won't ask that question. But uh, there is somebody who was very, very tall, uh, 8 feet 11. And uh, I'm not a medic. Uh, he's buried near Liverpool. But uh, he and perhaps Goliath as well suffered from some kind of pituitary gland issue, gigantism or giantism, they call it. But our storyteller wants us to contemplate the prospect of a man who's 9 foot 9. You remember when God told Samuel about um, what's, which of Saul's sons he was to select, to take no notice of the height, and not to look at the highest guy, not to look at the tallest? But there's no way that God, God's people can ignore a man who comes towards them who is nine foot nine. And then the storyteller dwells on Goliath's impressive armor. Do you see that look in verse 5? He has uh, the whole of his body shielded except his face. In verse 5, he has a bronze helmet. Saul has one of those uh, in verse 38. We'll see it later. But it's a most unusual bit of equipment because it's very expensive to have a bronze helmet. Menelaus in the Iliad has a bronze helmet. And then he has scale armor. Do you see that? And again, the storyteller, in a sense, takes time on each of these details. Now, it may just be that this scale armor is similar to Assyrian armor, again in the British Museum, and his bronze breastplate weighs around 5,000 shekels. I understand that's about 126 pounds. That's more than the paras carry when they're in their full kit. That's a lot. He's very strong. This kit is very, very substantial. He then wears um, bronze greaves. I don't know if any of the guys here have greaves uh, at home in the wardrobe, but uh, bronze greaves protect his calves. And again, they're often mentioned in the Iliad, because if you can get the greaves off, you can ha do the hamstrings. And uh, his javelin may be some kind of scimitar, a curved scimitar, with a straight handle and a semicircular blade and a cutting edge on one size of the blade. And then look at the size of his spear. It's compared to a weaver's beam, a weaver's rod, because it's a kind of an industrial weapon. You have to imagine somebody taking apart weaver's machinery to create a spear on this scale. The point weighs about 15 pounds. That's a shot put, isn't it, on the end of a piece of wood. And only the Philistines have access to iron and even Goliath can only afford to have one of his weapons made from iron. It's newly available, it's hugely expensive, and uh, then he has a shield that is carried by a shield bearer. In the middle there, you can see something that looks like a small door. And again, that's the point, that it covers his whole body, like somebody walking ahead of him, carrying a door to protect him. It's almost anybody, impossible for anyone to attack him since the shield bearer goes ahead of him. The technology is advanced, the kit is expensive, the scale is huge, the man is massive. And in verse 8, you see he stops moving, and he stands center stage in the valley, dominating the open space between the two armies, and he shouts. And he describes God's people as servants of Saul, in fact, slaves of Saul, and he taunts them to find a suitable champion. Find yourself a man big enough to kill me, he says. 
And look at him in verse 10. He says, and you read it beautifully, he says, I defy the ranks, defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let's fight each other. So here's a giant who's not only defiant and provocative, he's arrogant. He despises God's people. The same word defy or challenge comes four more times in the chapter. And look at that reaction in verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed, and they're terrified. And now we can certainly understand that reaction, can't we? Both from Saul and from the rest of the people. They are utterly dismayed. They are at a loss as to what they're going to do. The giant's words are frightening. The giant's appearance is frightening. The giant's astonishing equipment is frightening, and his stature is terrifying to all the king and all the king's horses and all the king's men. And you see, for a moment, if we come to that part of the story, that's where our storyteller, in effect, leaves them. Because in a minute, he's going to say, oh, by the way, David. But before we get to that, he, he leaves them with this giant in front of them. God's people are here facing an overwhelming enemy who utterly despises them, an enemy who has the power certainly to defeat them, and they have nobody among them who can rescue them. There's nobody who can take on this enemy and destroy him. And for the moment, there's no sign of God. God appears to be absent. For the moment, God is silent. It seems as if God in some ways might even be indifferent. And if we look back on this extraordinary giant in the light of the rest of the Bible story, what is the terror and the fear that this giant prompts picture for us? So thinking about that for a moment. There's only one giant, it seems to me, who strides across the stage of human history. One giant who sooner or later strikes fear into the heart of every family, family after family. One giant who is the last great enemy, even of the Christian believer, and that's death. If you take Goliath, and if you like picture Goliath as a personification of death, and think of Goliath as a living embodiment of the destructive power of death, then it's not hard, as death draws near, to understand the, the fear that all the Israelites experience. And early centuries, I actually had a much clearer grasp, in a way, of the way that sooner or later death attacks absolutely everybody. A very famous artist, Hans Holbein the uh, Younger, produced a series of amazing sketches, extraordinary sketches, called The Dance of Death. And those sketches show death bringing down the high and the mighty, and death visiting the poor and the lonely, and death visiting the elderly, and death visiting the youngest member of family after family. And I think it's still true, isn't it, that for all people, even God's people, even us, the approach of death is still frightening. Death's destructive power is still awesome. Death despises age. Old people die. But as we know, it's not just old people who die. Death despises social distinction. Poor people die. But it's not only poor people who die. Clever people die and popular people die and healthy people die and happy people die. And death is a vicious enemy. Cutting the heart out of family after family. Death cuts down husbands and daughters and sons and brothers and wives and children and fathers and mothers. And sooner or later, death will attack every single one of us without exception. And as if the storyteller says, look, just before we rush to the moment when the Savior appears, think of what we need to be saved from. Think of the giant. Gaze at the giant for a moment. And take seriously this dreadful reality that was part of their experience then on a battlefield, but that is enduringly, lastingly, part of our experience in church life and family life for always. This is a particular giant that still, in a sense, struts the land today. Can we just take a moment and talk to your neighbor about what strikes you as we gaze at that giant? Would you do that for a minute, just, just to talk to someone next to you and think about what it looks like as we gaze at that giant for just a few moments, then I'll take you on through the next part of the story. Off you go. Okay, we've got some windows open. I think we've got some air. Let's go on again.
You're right. I was just talking to, to somebody. That journey from the story to the stage, I've asked you to stay mainly in the story so far and think about the impact of facing that giant. And the question that arises as we go on in the story is why does God put this individual encounter with a particular human terror on the stage for all his people to see and to remember forever after? What's the enduring significance of this particular encounter? What I'm suggesting to you is that beyond all the other tyrants, if you like, who strut their stuff in the scriptures subsequently, whether it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar or other people, if you think of Daniel's experience of tyrant after tyrant after tyrant, Cyrus and the rest of them, behind all those other human tyrants stands a, an enemy who remains an enemy. Do you see that? Now, the way we face that enemy is different this side of Easter, but I want to suggest to you that this is an encounter that it has a stature that we need to, to understand. Why would God put this on the stage forever after for his people to see? And that's what we're going to go on to try to do now. So on in our story, let me introduce you to a character here called William Watson. He was an Oxford graduate, the outbreak of the First World War. And with friends from Oxford, he enlisted in the army, expecting the war to last about six weeks. And his story was first published in 1915 and put together from a series of letters that he sent home during the very first part of the war. And there are times when he writes, and I, I've read his letters, with a kind of optimism that make him sound as if everything is fine. And there are other times when the kind of horror of the slaughter is inescapable and the bravery of the young men, he himself and those around him, is astonishing and remarkable. Uh, but the point of the picture is that he went to the battle on a very unreliable motorbike. And he carried this motorbike through the course of the war. And his job was to deliver and to receive messages. Now, as the story goes on, we've been looking at the giant. But what happens now is that we turn from the giant to a boy. And the boy at the center of the story, as it now develops, goes onto the battlefield on a very unremarkable donkey. And his job is to deliver food and take a message from his father. And yet this young man turns out to be God's chosen champion, and God has chosen him to destroy a giant. So we leave the battlefield behind now, and we go away from the battlefield to the little village where David grew up. It's the little town of Bethlehem that we sing about at a different time of year. And while we're in the village, we're going to meet David's family, especially his father, and we're going to be reminded that day after day, the giant challenges God's people to find a champion of their own, of a suitable size. And day after day after day, there's no sign of a saviour. And we're going to listen to David's father preparing food for his eldest boys and sending his smallest lad to deliver it safely. And then from the, from the little town of Bethlehem, we'll go back to the valley as David arrives. And we'll see this giant now through David's eyes. And we'll respond to the giant through David's ears. And we'll see how David responds himself. And then we'll come to his victory. And as we make our way step by step, we'll... We'll go on saying to ourselves, well, where is God in all of this? God is invisible throughout this story. We never see him. God, if you like, is inscrutable from start to finish. We never hear from him. But what we'll see in this next part is that God is in charge of every detail of what happens on the battlefield, what happens back in Bethlehem, and everywhere in between. And that's a great encouragement to us. So our next heading, if you like headings, is listen to David's family. All right? So let me read to you verses 12 to 19. We'll come back to verse 28 in a minute. So verse 12. So we've left the battlefield in verse 11. Now verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Let's just stop there for a minute. 
See the storyteller who insisted that we started with the geography of the battlefield before we came to gaze at the giant who dominates the battlefield now insists that we pay attention to David's family uh, back home in Bethlehem, 12 miles away. And the spotlight is on David in verse 12, and you see he's from a big family. He has seven older brothers, and his father is now an old man. He's retired. And then verse 13 looks away from David, and we're told about his three older brothers who are serving the king. And then back to David, the youngest son. He's the messenger boy, backwards and forwards. No motorbike for him. He goes backwards and forwards with messages and packages from his father to his brothers. And while he's at home, he's looking after the sheep. Oh, and you see in verse 16, you mustn't forget the giant. Do you see how for 40 days, we're told, he emerges from the enemy lines, morning and evening like clockwork. He challenges God's people to find for themselves a champion. And 40 is a big number in the Bible. And for 40 years, do you remember, God's people were tested in the wilderness. And now for 40 days, they're being tested again, just like Hannah was tested. The start of the story it went on for year and for year after year after year. And God did nothing. And old man Jesse is worried, you see that. And so he sends his youngest boy to find out about the brothers. And Bible readers remember an earlier story. Do you remember when a worried father sent out a young man to find out about his brothers? Do you remember young Joseph was sent by his father to find out about his brothers. And when he got there, his brothers were not too pleased to see him. And they planned to kill him, but instead they sold him. So we're not totally certain what's going to happen to this young David as he comes to the battlefield. And then the storyteller insists that we dwell on the very ordinary details, the human details of the story. Do you see in verse 17? Roasted grain. And you could have had that instead of ice cream and you wouldn't feel sick. It was a delicacy. It was prepared by roasting the corn in an iron pan. It was a favorite food among simple people. Nobody eats gourmet food on the battlefield. And once cooked, roasted grain would keep for a while. And an ephah is a lot. It's 56 pounds. It's a full load for a single donkey. Add some cheeses. And then uh, Jesse wants to hear that his boys are okay. So he sends David to walk the 12 miles or so to the valley and then find out what's happening. And David's father is simply glad to use young David as a messenger boy and a shepherd boy. He's much too young to join in and become one of Saul's soldiers. Now we're going to skip over verses 20 and 27 and we'll come back to them and listen to David's elder brother responding to David's questions. Look in verse 28. So when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came down to watch the battle. It's an astonishingly hostile reaction to young David, who's just doing what his father's asked him to do, as David's response makes clear. Look in verse 29. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? But there's more going on than meets the eye. Do you notice what David's older brother said about David's heart? In verse 28. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is, says the brother. But we were told earlier, weren't we, that God was going to choose David as a man after God's own heart. And now here is the elder brother saying, this is a man with a wicked and conceited heart. So Eliab is completely wrong about David. Eliab is dismissing God's chosen rescuer. And Eliab's scorn, and he's supposed to be on the same side as David, anticipates Goliath's scorn for David. Do you see that? Now, if you come on that little journey from the story to the stage and to the Savior a thousand years later, the brothers of Jesus... Do you remember? Dismissed him just as abruptly, mocking him and accusing him of trying to make a name for himself. And it's John's gospel that records their scorn at the prospect of, oh, go up to the festival, go and make a name for yourself, is what they say to him. So as we listen to David's family, we can see how his father simply uses him. His brothers utterly dismiss him. They have nothing but scorn for him. They think he's thoroughly cocky and jumped up. And David's family would never have chosen David as God's champion. 
And it shows us, doesn't it, in some ways, just how, possible, how wrong it's possible to be and how easily we can miss the fact that God is already at work under our noses. Do you see that? Listen to David's family. They get David totally wrong. Well, now let's watch David's faith in verses 20 to 27. And let's come back to verse 20. So I'll read verses 20 to 27. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out into its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So verse 20, David starts early. It's a 12-mile journey. That's enough. Someone was telling me about how far they'd walked on the mountains the other day. Uh, 12 hours they did, 12 miles this is. He loads up the donkey and several hours later... And again, do you see how the storyteller assumes we know the geography? So we know it takes several hours to walk 12 miles. Several hours later, David arrives at exactly the moment when these two armies line up opposite each other on either side of the valley. And he hears the sort of soldiers shouting towards each other. And do you notice just a little detail in the verse, uh, verse 20, verse 22. Look in verse 22. David leaves his things with the man in charge of the baggage. Oh, baggage. Several episodes earlier, when Saul was chosen to lead God's people, do you remember what he did? He was so frightened of the job that was in store for him that he hid himself among the baggage. But David leaves his stuff with the man who looks after the baggage. And then do you see what we're told? He runs to the battle lines. He's very different from Saul. He's not yet on the throne. He finds his brothers. He greets them. And just as he's talking with them, Goliath steps out from the enemy lines. And there's a big difference between David and the rest of the people of God at this point. Do you see what verse 24 tells us? It tells us that whenever the people saw the man, they ran from him in great fear. And they were controlled in verse 24 by what they saw. The giant, his military equipment, his aggression, and his power to destroy them. And we can understand their fear. And verse 25 records what the people have been saying to each other. Do you see in verse 25, they say, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? Oh, and the king will give his daughter to the man who kills him, and there's a tax break, a lifelong tax break thrown in. But they're dominated by what they see. And now for the first time in the whole of the story, David speaks. Now he's obviously spoken, it's not that he's mute, he's spoken to his father about his brothers and the state of the sheep and the lion he killed on that particular day. But this is the very first time in the whole of the story that David's words are recorded for us to hear. Therefore this is a huge moment as this character steps into, if you like, the center and these words really matter. This is our very first opportunity to hear the sort of man that God has chosen to be king. And David asks two questions. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And that little word, this, crops up again and again in this chapter. It's a dismissive word. Goliath, if you like, has been dissing God's people. And now it's David's turn to diss Goliath. Some years ago, I was walking through London, and I looked at somebody as I walked past me. He said, are you dissing me? 
uh, really quite aggressively. I said, I'm afraid I don't know what dissing is, so I couldn't be dissing you even if I wanted to. And uh, he, he wasn't totally impressed by that. Now, do you notice what David sees? What David sees is not, if you like, the giant on the other side of the valley. What David sees is the disgrace on his own side of the valley. And then David asks his other question. So first off, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? How dare he defy the living God? In other words, doesn't the presence of the living God make a difference round here? See, here David, just arrived, remembers what the rest of God's people have forgotten, and they've forgotten it day after day after day after day. And it's this, that God has made it perfectly clear that he's capable of the defeating the Philistines without any help from his people at all. How do we know that? Well, I mentioned, didn't I, that uh, Goliath was from Gath. And back at the start of the story, um, Gath was one of those cities of the Philistines that had been terrorized by the power of God's presence. The ark had been to Gath. And that's where Dagon was. And when they put the uh, ark into Dagon's temple, remember the first, the first morning after that, and they put, the way they did this was they put the ark as a kind of captured trophy. Look at that moose on the wall over there, uh, just through there, sort of shot and killed and stuck on the wall. Well, they brought the ark into the temple of their god as evidence that they were more powerful than the god they defeated in battle. And the idea was if there was any kind of residual power left in this symbol from the god they defeated, well, they, they could sort of harness that power to go with Dagon's power. Dagon was in charge in their particular turf as far as they were concerned. Well, this had been an away match. Uh, and rather like a sort of battery with a bit of power left in it, they put the ark in the temple to, to take hold of that power for themselves. Well, they, their great triumph as they brought the ark into Dagon's temple. Next morning, the statue of Dagon was on its face on the floor. Uh, it is as if the statue of Dagon had been made to prostrate itself before the Ark of God in Dagon's temple. So they put him back up again, they propped him back up again, and uh, the storyteller has great delight saying, and all the priests, when they come into Dagon's temple, they kind of leap over the entrance, so not to embarrass Dagon, because his forehead finished up on the entrance to the temple. And so they propped him up, and the next morning they came back, and what did they find? They found Dagon on his face on the floor in pieces, butchered, his arms and his legs separated from the rest of him. If you'll forgive a dreadful pun, Dagon was a bygone at that point. And the God of Israel had butchered him in his own backyard. And all that took place in Gath. And now here's Goliath from Gath, challenging God's people. And when David hears a man from Gath, defying and despising and dismissing the living God and his people, he's not prepared to put up with it. It's high time that someone killed this giant and silent his, silenced his defiance. Who, who is this man, says David, who defies the living God? Well, a man who talks like that, a man who trusts God in the face of death like that, soon attracts the attention of the king, as we'll see in just a moment. But I want, what I want you to see for a moment before we get there is what God is doing. Do you see how God brings his champion to the battlefield at just the right moment? Every detail of David's life has been under God's control. It's as if, in a sense, God has been training him away from the battlefield for this particular moment. God supervised the time when his alarm clock went off that morning. God supervised every step of that 12-mile journey on the way to the valley. He arrives at exactly the moment to hear Goliath's defiant and scornful challenge. And step by step, God is at work invisibly, we might say behind the scenes, but I want to say in a sense in the heart of the action, to bring the whole scene towards his chosen final outcome. And that seems to me to be a great encouragement to us. We can see that same hand at work in the life of the Lord Jesus. He was born at the right time. He was born where God chose him to be born. 
He steps step by step towards the cross, just as God has determined. And he knows that. He says, I, my time has not yet come. He's conscious of a clock ticking, taking him towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we can have encouragement that the hand of God is at work in our lives today. His hidden hand controls every detail of all our lives, all the circumstances. When the sun shines across the landscape of our lives and when we find ourselves in, in places that are darker and more difficult and where it's, where it's colder and harder to proceed. And you see, when God's champion finally speaks, and I want to underline it's the first time we've heard from him, in response to the taunts and the scorn of God's enemy, he speaks with faith. And he speaks of the living God, who is more powerful than a mere giant. And he speaks of the living God, who is more powerful than death. Well, that seems to me to be great news. And again, if you think about how the Lord Jesus speaks in the face of death, at the prospect of death, how he looks beyond death. Just take that last supper when he's there with his friend. He says, oh, I'm not going to have another drink until we drink together later. It's a glorious picture, isn't it, of the one who will go through death, who knows he's going to defeat the power of death. He's our champion who destroys death for us and invites us to share in his victory. Well, it's hot and you're working hard, so just take a brief break and think about what's been very striking as we've thought about God bringing this little champion onto the battlefield at just the right time, and then we'll go race for the finishing line in a moment. So just take two or three minutes to talk to each other. What struck you most about this middle part of the story? Off you go. Okay. You're doing well. Let's race for the finishing line, shall we? All right, I'll try not to go too quickly. There's a well-known story that I love about uh, a Christian who was thrown to the lions. You may have heard this story before, but it, uh, you know that Christians were routinely killed by lions in the arena for the entertainment of the crowds. And the one time there was a, a very frightened Christian who began to pray as a fierce lion came running towards him. And uh, he closed his eyes. He prayed for a quick death. And he waited for the lion's teeth to crush his skull or break his neck, and he hoped it'd be quick, but nothing happened. And he eventually opened one eye to see where the lion had gone. And the lion was there right beside him. And the lion was sitting on its haunches with its eyes closed. And the lion was praying. It was a Christian lion. He was going to be okay. <laughs> and then he heard what the lion was praying for what we are about to receive. May the Lord make us <laughs> truly thankful. That's a silly story. But the final section tonight is about the God who saves his people from lions and bears and giants and death. And there are three chunks to this final part of the story. And we're going to have David's conversation with Saul and his duel with Goliath and then God's people sharing in the victory that follows. So again, if you like headings, here is the next one. Wince at Saul's failure. Verse 31. You see how the scene starts, that uh, David was overheard, and so he was reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And the scene starts as David is taken into the king, and ends as David uh, heads off towards the giant. And at the very heart of the scene is David's answer to, Saul quest to Saul's question, uh, Saul's objection, that he's too young to fight the giant. And we're going to see, if you like, David's faith and Saul's failure set side by side. So verse 32. It's really very lovely, verse 32. A young man speaks to the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. But you're a young man, says Saul in verse 33. You're not able to go out and fight this giant. He's a, we might say, a professional. He's a, he's a seasoned warrior. You're, you're a lad from the farm. So in verses 34 to 37, David makes his case. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And you might say, that's not a very promising open li opening line. Uh, it's not a very good sort of qualification for joining the military, is it? I've been a sheep farmer for a while. But actually, David is saying to Saul, don't write me off because I have no experience of war or formal training for war. In fact, it turns out that killing big, hairy animals is part of my job. And this big, hairy animal will be just the same. Now, do you see how David's faith in God's power to save has been hard won? 
He's learned to trust God, we might say, with a fistful of lion's hair in his hand. His faith, if you like, has felt the lion's breath on his face. His faith has sustained him again and again as God has repeatedly rescued him from the lion's teeth. There is nothing passive about David's faith. It is for real, but it has been tested and proved true. So why kill Goliath? Well, verse 36, because he, last line, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And what makes David so confident that he will win? Well, verse 37 is beautiful. Listen to his faith. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the poor of, I shouldn't say poor, from the hand of this Philistine. Do you see that? One animal, another animal, this one no different from the others. And each time it was God who saved him. Do you see, David doesn't actually, in verse 37, boast about his ability as a fighter. He doesn't say, look at my guns, I've been working out in the gym. Every time it's been God who has saved him. And as he looks back with faith to what God has already done for him, he can look forward in faith to what God will do for him now. It's kind of logic, too. He looks back to the way God has saved him from lions and bears, and therefore he can look forward to God saving him from the giant. So what God has already done several times in the wilderness, he trusts him to do again here now in the valley. Now, I find his example very helpful to me personally, to us as a, uh, a group of Christians, to congregations, church family in which you are. Our faith is sustained, isn't it, in the present moment and from the f- for the future, as we remember by faith what God has already done for us in the past. I think what happens when we share bread and wine together, we remember what God has done for us. His past kindness and goodness to us sustains our faith as we look forward with some uncertainty or anxiety. And memory and logic are faith's friends here. Memory says, look, the Lord rescued us then and there, and logic chips in. Well, if he could handle that, then he can handle this. You can see that in David's faith. And then verses 38 and 39 are a kind of comic interlude. Uh, if you look at that, we're being invited to picture young, Saul in, in, uh, young David in Saul's armour. But as we picture Saul dressing up young David in royal armour, our initial kind of laughter as he takes his own tunic and his own coat of armour, his own bronze helmet, and David kind of tries them all on and he can't because he's not used to them. I can't go in these, he says. I'm not used to them. Our laughter turns sour because it's a very painful picture, actually, of the spiritual cluelessness of the king, as if his weapons were only used to this young man. And his willingness to abdicate his own responsibility to this young man. He's trying to help, but all he's got to offer David is his own version, rather inadequate version, of Goliath's weapons. Do you see that? Saul is trying to match Goliath's firepower and attach similar firepower to David. Well, let me give you an example of from the across the water. The leadership of the Church of England seems to me very often behave like Saul. Tired management, leadership training courses are rolled out across the country as if we can expect management training courses to solve the problems of the weakness of the clergy. More than 25 years ago when I was being trained, we were all encouraged to do Myers-Briggs tests. So if that was going to be really helpful, I had a degree in psychology at the time, I could tell you it was nonsense then. It's now been proved to have no scientific value at all. And it's always painful and ridiculous and fruitless when the church looks to the weapons of the world in the search for power. And it's a common theme. You'll see it again and again and again, dressing up God's David in the weapons of Saul. So David knows better. Off he goes down to the river. He picks up five smooth stones that were suitable for his sling. Uh, This is military equipment of the time, bigger than a golf ball, smaller than a cricket ball. The sling was a military weapon that was common in the Near East. The book of Judges refers to 700 left-handed Benjaminite slingers. And each of them could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Uh, This is a very serious weapon. Why five smooth stones and not one or six? You'd be surprised to know that gallons of ink have been spilled on that question over the years. And the most helpful answer I have seen is this that suggests that although David's faith in God's power to save him is firm, 
He's not so cocky that he assumes he can drop the giant at the first shot. So five stones, so he's got enough ammunition to get the job done. Who knows why? So the scene is set. Young David has has persuaded the king to allow him to take on the giant. This faith that we can see now on display is hard won, facing God's fierce teachers. A bear is a fierce teacher in the school of faith. A lion is a pretty fierce teacher if God is teaching you to trust him. And the underlying logic of David's faith is helpful to us. Well, let's come on to the moment we've been waiting for. Enjoy Goliath's death. That's rather a crude heading, isn't it, for a a talk? But there you go. I think that's what's going on here. I think we are invited to enjoy the giant's death. And look in verse 41. He dominates that scene again. Verse 41 to 44. Five times where he mentions the Philistine. And the Philistine went. The Philistine looked. The Philistine said. The Philistine cursed. And then again, five times the Philistine does something. And it's almost as if the text itself sort of trembles under Goliath's heavy tread and his heavy sarcasm and his slow and clumsy movements. So in 43, you see what he says in scorn. 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he says, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. He doesn't see David's real weapons, the stones, and he curses David by his gods. And now the stakes are getting higher, aren't they? Spiritually, they're much higher. And he promises to feed David's corpse to the birds and the lions and the bears. And look at David's reply, and this is magnificent from a young man. He says this, He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, not to mention shield. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, as we might say, today is the day of salvation, says David. The Lord will hand you over to me. I'll kill you and cut off your head. Today, your whole army will be turned into bird food and supper for bears. So remarkable courage, confidence, faith, defiance. So why is, why is God going to use David to rescue his people? Well, David tells us, first to teach the world. Do you see, David says to us that God wants all the world to know that only Israel has the true God. There is a God in Israel, and the only true God is the God of Israel. And then second, to teach God's own people. God is going to use this absurdly young and inexperienced champion to save them so that when God's own people look back on their salvation, they will be certain that it's God who saves them and God who saves them by himself and not by the rest of them being involved. And now we're going to see God do to Goliath what he did earlier to Goliath's God just down the road from Goliath's hometown. Remember I mentioned earlier that when the God of the Philistines, Dagon, got in a fight with the God of Israel, Dagon finished face down without his head. And the same is about to happen to their champion, Goliath. And so David says the battle is the Lord's. And this duel turns out to be part of a far bigger struggle. The Lord's battle is going to be fought in God's way. And David knows that when God's victory comes, it will not be by spear or by sword, as Goliath thinks wars are won. The Lord may use human experience and training, but when he chooses David as his champion, it's in spite of Eliab's criticism and misunderstanding. It's in spite of Saul's unhappiness and in spite of Goliath's scorn. Put that on the stage for a moment. And think about the enduring impact of that. And come with me to a scene a thousand years later on that first Good Friday where God's chosen champion was again misunderstood, misrepresented, scorned and ill-treated, but God still used him to destroy our, our far greater enemy. Look in verse 48. Goliath comes nearer. And David runs quickly. 
And after all the anticipation, the fight itself is over inside the first round. David's stones, I mentioned, will be two or three inches in diameter. An experienced warrior could fire stones at between 100 and 150 miles an hour. If you like this kind of thing, there's a film on YouTube where you can go and explore the science of David's sling and the size of the stone. And a champion slinger hits a target the size of Goliath's forehead with a stone and hits it hard enough to knock a hole in the skull, creating a shockwave big enough to kill a man. A storyteller doesn't care. He knows those things. He simply records how David takes out the stone and slings it, strikes the Philistine on the forehead, and the, the champion falls on his face on the ground. But you see verse 50? It interrupts the story which carries on in verse 51. So again, the storyteller is deliberately slowing down the pace to show the significance of the victory, not just the reality of the victory. And to show the reason for the victory, it was God who gave him this victory very plainly as he struck down the enemy. And again, if you had a soundtrack to this particular scene, it seems to me there'd be shock and silent astonishment on both sides of the valley. The young man, David, stands there with a slightly gory trophy holding up the dead giant's head. And God has given to this man, young man the most unlikely victory. And now for the aftermath, because God's people are invited to share in David's victory. And you can see that they charge into the valley, chase the Philistines about five miles, all the way back to the gates of Goliath's hometown. There were dead bodies left all along the route, and then they loot the enemy camp, and David takes Goliath's weapons and Goliath's head back home as an unlikely souvenir. I don't know if you bought a postcard in Newcastle. Giants' heads are harder to find. But uh, here is uh, the equivalent. There's uh, up there the head of an enemy been conquered hanging from a tree while Ashurbanipal drinks his afternoon tea. It's in the uh, British Museum. You can see the king and his wife. They're having tea in the afternoon. And there is the enemy head hanging in the tree. So the kind of thing goes on at the time. What's the point of this final scene in our story? Well, God's people are being invited to rejoice in the victory, but see the victory is theirs. Because it's his, it's shared with them. And you can see where that goes for us. Our side of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, God invites us to share in the benefits of Christ's victory. Our champion has decapitated death for us. Our champion has destroyed death's ultimate power. He's purchased our freedom. We can be free from the fear of death through faith in our champion. We can receive life beyond death's worst through faith in our champion. We can be free from the penalty of sin through faith in our champion. We can be free one day from the presence of sin through faith in our champion. Where does it leave us? How does the story bring God into sharp focus for us? Well, a couple of suggestions. It seems to me that in the end, God always wins. It's a big mistake to take on God and expect to win, whoever we are, whether we're notionally on God's side, the way a lie about the others are, or whether we're one of God's enemies. And the God who saved David from the lion and the giant is the God who saves us from death and from Satan. So the story is an invitation to trust him forever after this particular encounter. The God who saved David on the battlefield trained David to trust him with a lion's breath on his face and a bear's tooth at the end of his nose. The story invites us again to trust God, surely to train our faith, expect God to test our faith, know that God will develop our faith in whatever ways he chooses, even when sometimes his teachers are pretty terrifying and we'd rather the test or the, or the training wasn't quite so stiff or so severe. Last question, how does the story of David's victory reveal God's determination to bring us eventually to that glorious wedding supper? Well, King David's, great King David's greatest son destroyed the enemy, not with a stone, but by allowing himself to be destroyed. It seems to me that God's love for us, God's everlasting commitment to us could hardly be clearer and if you like, Easter, that Good Friday and Easter Sunday story shows us how superbly God has prepared his champion 
and how step by step, tick by tick by tick, hour by hour, he brings him to the battlefield at the moment that he has chosen. And he's not only prepared and trained his champion for us, that champion had to give his life, but he did so willingly and gladly in our place in order to destroy the enemy so that we can say, where is your sting? That's great news for which we can be thankful. Will you take a moment just to talk to your neighbour about what's been striking about that last part of the story as we've raced through to David's victory and then we're going to sing together. Before that, we'll pray. But just a moment or two to talk to someone sitting next to you. What's really struck you about that last and third part of the chapter? Off you go. Okay. Do, do carry on those conversations later. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. So let's pray as we sit. thank you our heavenly father for the victory of the lord jesus we thank you for our champion chosen by you for us we thank you for the training of the champion we thank you for your supervision your rule over every detail every moment of his life as you brought him to that battlefield for us and as we thank you for his victory thank you that in him his victory is ours and we ask that you'll give us confidence in him and confidence in you that step by step, whatever may come in our own lives, we can trust you and we can learn how to trust you more as you teach us and train us and test us. And we can look forward ultimately to that great feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that between here and there, you will help us to put our trust in him day by day. Amen.